Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Today, Elk Shape Podcast number 13 with me, Dan Staten, and finally, bringing on somebody that I've been bugging and hounding to get on the show, somebody who I think is one of the most intelligent, calculated elk killers out in the world is Corey Jacobson. From Elk 101. If you don't know who Corey Jacobson is, I'd be surprised. He's a world calling elk champion. Killed a lot of elk. Has probably the most thorough elk hunting university that you can go through. Um, it's called Elk 101 University. It's a paid course where you, it's not even that expensive, where you, if you don't know crap about elk hunting or if you're actually a pretty good elk hunter, you could still learn a lot from Corey. I think it's 47 chapters and 17 modules and videos and 130,000 plus words where he breaks down how to become a better elk hunter. And hopefully I can get him to talk about that a little bit. But I'm bringing Corey on to ask some of the hard questions about elk hunting, some more technical type questions on calling and scenarios and, and really how to be a better quarterback. I've noticed that Corey in some of his videos is the ultimate quarterback all the plays are ran through him and the dude knows what the bull's going to do before the bull even knows it and i'm telling you if you can learn from Corey, you're going to be more successful and i wish there was more guys out there like Corey in the hunting industry he's one of the few blue collar roots logging background uh, a guy who had a phenomenal job as a mechanical engineer for a tech company and quit it to be self-employed and I just got a lot of respect for everything he does. He doesn't try to be fake or put out a facade. I don't think he cares if you like or don't like what he's doing. He just does him. And he's really genuine and authentic. And he really cares about El Cunning. He's a super passionate guy. And he's somebody that I look up to and respect. And I'm pumped to have him on finally. So do me the favor and listen. I know that we're doing this through the Internet. We're not doing a Skype call. or So he's. I'm going to call him through the Internet on my uh so i haven't done one of these before i hope the audio turns out okay if it's mediocre just understand we're trying our best and you can support elk shape go to our website check out some hats 
check out the 21 Days to Elk Shape program. I feel like that's one of the best things I've done as far as creating a program for anyone at any fitness level on how I would recommend you prepare physically and mentally to get ready for elk hunting season. We have some decals and t-shirts are coming. And I also post free workouts on there. I just post what I do. I got a daily or a weekly blog. I post all the workouts for the week. You can check those out if you need some ideas to see what I do. And there's some articles on there. So appreciate the support there. You can check out the YouTube channel, Elk Shape. I put some workout videos, some elk hunts. Some of these podcasts get on there. And I appreciate your support. And you can always reach out to me, elkshape at gmail.com. Any questions? I know our next podcast will be just going through the backlog of questions that people have emailed me or direct messaged me. I will get to you and, and answer those. And enjoy the show. Corey Jacobson, Elk 101. Elk Shape Podcast number 13, lucky number 13. Finally got the guy I've been wanting to talk to. Corey Jacobson's here today. Corey, how's it going? Doing good. Thanks for having me, Dan. I know you're a busy man. Um, for those that don't know you or have never heard of your name, Living Under a Rock, give us the quick elevator pitch of what Corey Jacobson's all about. <laughs> uh, I'm just a regular guy who loves elk hunting, so... I, uh, you know, the love for elk hunting and, and my passion for elk hunting led me to start a website called elk101.com, and that's, you know, just taking me down a lot of different rabbit holes, but all of them eventually focus back and end back up in the topic of elk hunting. So that's that's me in a nutshell, elk hunter, uh, family man, entrepreneur, wannabe, <laughs> However you want to look at it. Well, that's cool. And it's a it's a balancing act for sure. We talk a lot about that, you know, having kids, being married, being passionate about elk hunting. It's a blessing and a curse. Um, so let's back up before Elk 101 days, uh, before you were working for yourself. What were you doing? What was your uh, area of expertise? Yeah, so I, you know, I graduated uh, from the University of Idaho with a degree in mechanical engineering, and that led me to a job in Boise. So I grew up in northern Idaho and then migrated south down to Boise and worked for Micron down there for about 10 years and uh, had a great job, you know, great engineering job, great benefits, uh, good pay with a guaranteed paycheck every two weeks, and uh, that was my adult life for the first 10 years of being an adult and then uh, things changed but <laughs> you know it, uh, it it just got I grew up in the outdoors uh, you know during the summers I worked outdoors and then I, I I don't know what I was thinking getting into engineering that it would be you know what it was I knew what it was I just didn't I guess think that far ahead that I'd be able to make the sacrifices to to endure sitting in a cubicle for nine hours a day and having my two weeks of vacation to go hunting and be in the outdoors. But after 10 years, I realized that wasn't the direction I wanted. It was, you know, everything was good. It was stable, great company to work for. But I just uh, was looking for something, something different, something more, something that gave me a little more freedom. And obviously with that came the, the sacrifice. So if you sacrifice the benefits and the paycheck every two weeks, but, uh, my wife was supportive. We'd had our third child, and uh, he was seven months, eight months old. And I came home and said, "Hey, I think I'm going to quit and do this." And you know, the the credit goes to my wife for being supportive. I think most wives, the tendency would be, "You're going to do what? We have a eight 
eight-month-old and two other children under the age of four, and you're going to walk away from benefits and a paycheck. But she did, and I actually started a construction company, and I had actually started it while I was still working at Micron, and, and it picked up. And then, as you know, construction in 2007, 2008 took a turn to the down, and fortunately I was uh, just able to step off from residential into commercial and built assisted livings through the downturn and weathered that, and everything was good. But other opportunities that came up while I was at Micron, while I was doing construction, kind of led me to the path I'm currently on. I think that's important what you said there, because we talk about entrepreneurship. I get a lot of emails about it, is guys that want to start their own business, be prepared to work your regular job and clock in right when you get home on your next job and you do that until you can't do it anymore and that's how you know yep. when you can and fear is definitely a component was there a, an incident or something that triggered an emotional response where you were like i'm doing this that's it i'm going for it i've had enough of you know water cooler chat or hating where I'm at, like what, what triggered you to finally just go for it and jump off the deep end? You know, I, I don't think there was really a, an emotional reaction. Uh, I'm a very calculated, planned out, linear uh, personality. So it was, you know, I, I had assessed the risk, and, and I think the, the thing that drove me most was just the potential. And, you know, working the job I was working, it was a guaranteed paycheck. It was great pay. There were stock options. There were, you know, 100% benefits paid. All of the, everything that, you know, we look at, especially as, as younger people and coming out of college, it was, it was the dream job. But I also realized that no matter how hard I worked, I was making money for somebody else. And, you know, at the end of the day, I'd rather retire when I was 55 instead of 65, which I'm a long ways off from that. But it's in my control uh, to a greater degree when I'm when I'm self-employed than when I'm employed for someone else, and so I think that was that was what I saw was the potential that if I work really hard, I've got potential to increase uh, what I'm bringing home right now, and and so there, there was a lot of majored risk. Okay, I'm also going to have to pay for benefits. We're going to have to do this. Um, my family's going to be willing to accept that I'm not going to leave it. 7.30 and get home at 5.30 and, and that was it for work for the day that there might be mornings, weekends, evenings, you know, my, my attention would be divided now on a regular basis and so weighing all of that, um, I did have a, a great friend who's been a really good business mentor and entrepreneur mentor for me, uh, Ralph Albright, and he told me one time, he told me one time, just as, as I was talking to him about it, he said, fear is probably the greatest motivator. And if you aren't experiencing some, you know, fear or doubt or discouragement, you need to be scared because you really need to feel that. That's going to motivate you to work extra hard and make sure things work out. And so, you know, there were, there were definitely moments of that of, wow, what are we doing here? But for the most part, I think I had a, a pretty good game plan and a roadmap in place that, you know, the potential downsides were minimized and, and uh, most of the risk that could have snuck up was, you know, it's always there, but I think we, we did the best we could to minimize it. Yeah, definitely. Well, fun fact, the owner of Micron, I think he passed away, but at the time of 2007, uh, he owned the fitness building I was working in when I lived in Meridian, just out of Boise, 
was doing the same thing. I was planning, how am I going to make the jump into self-employment? I was working, making someone else a lot of money, and, and I was doing the same thing, figuring out, calculating my risks to go work for myself, and I've never had a regret. There's been a lot of ups and downs, just like in elk hunting, but it's all worth it. And I think there was a good segue in there. You said fear is a powerful driver, and that can be for elk hunting and kind of the elk-shaped brand of life that I talk about is the fear of not necessarily failure, but you know, not being prepared for elk hunting season can be a really positive thing. So what are some of the things you do the, unfortunately, t let's say 10 months to 11 months out of the year, you're not elk hunting. What are, what's Corey Jacobson doing to minimize risk and mitigate fear and work towards your ultimate goal, which is being prepared to elk hunt to your fullest potential each fall? Totally. No, and, and you bring up a great point there that, you know, when we talk about business or entrepreneurship or life in general or hunting there's so many similarities and it, and it really boils down to success and failure and you know when, when we talk about hunting failure is a harsh term and it's it's a very gray term because every day spent elk hunting is a success there's there's no doubt about that but you know as, as we talk about the ultimate goal of, of an elk hunter is to put a tag on an animal i mean that's our ultimate goal if it wasn't we would be you know, taking pictures of them or enjoying the outdoors in some other way. But as a hunter, we're out there, you know, our, our goal is to put a tag on an animal. So when we talk about success in hunting, you know, I, I really like to differentiate that and make sure people know that it's not all about that end result, that there are successes that happen all along the way. But, you know, ultimately it is about being successful. And so it, it does come down to, you know, working hard. And there are a lot of things that, that I think people need to do and that I try to do to, like you say, minimize the risk of failure and increase our, our chances of being successful. And for me, you know, it's elk hunting, I think, is a, is a lifelong education. We will never understand everything there is to know about elk. And so I just try to immerse myself as much as I can in any aspect of elk hunting and there's so many aspects you know from scouting and scouting takes you into remote scouting with google earth or trail cameras or boots on the ground and hiking trips and you know learning areas and there's just all of those facets of of scouting and that's just one of 15 or 16 categories i could think of off the top of my head that go into elk hunting so i'm just you know those 11 months of the year when we're dreaming about the elk rut in september I'm just trying to immerse myself in as many of those categories as I can to improve. And, you know, some of it's just time spent um, on the computer scouting. Some of it's time spent uh, researching gear. Some of it's time spent testing gear. Uh, some of it's time spent you know, on the fit, physical side, the conditioning and fitness. Um, just each of those areas. And I really don't think you need to be a, an expert in certainly not all the areas um, or any of the areas really I think it's just a matter of improving in each of those areas and each of those pieces of the pie kind of contribute to overall success yeah that's really cool the way you said that I mean you can probably do something every day positive in the name of better elk hunting and it doesn't have to take that much time or take away from what you got going on but it for as much as we all think about elk hunting, we probably should do something 
<laughs> and make those tough, disciplined decisions each and every day that are going to lead to the big picture down the road. And uh, I like that about the sport or the way of life, whatever you want to call it. And I think that's pretty important. So I kind of want to switch gears a little. I have a lot of questions, so I don't want it to sound too random. I want them to flow. But, Corey, I watched you <laughs> on the um, Born and Raised um, awesome YouTube series, which was pretty groundbreaking. For those that don't know, those guys filmed every day of their elk hunting season, and it was something like 50-plus days in five states. And I believe their second hunt was with you guys from Elk 101. Uh, Dirk was there. Um, and who, who's your other buddy? Donnie. Yeah, so Donnie and I, and yep, we hunted the, the second week of the film project with them. Definitely, if you haven't seen that, it's a must, not a should. And did a really good job just showing how it goes down every day. And there's, you know, not every day is a bugle fest. And but, but what I wanted to get to was when I was watching and you were on screen, Corey, you were the quarterback. Uh, no question. All the plays got ran through you. You... Uh, I don't basically knew what to do, I, where to set I up. Like the, you like that? I, I like the quarterback more so than the control freak. That's, that's much more positive. So. Uh, yes. <laughs> Plays got ran through Corey, and it was super evident, and uh, I was observing. And I think a lot of guys don't know what play to run. They don't know what the bull's going to do like you probably don't always know what the bull is going to do but let's be honest you have a pretty good idea of what that bull wants to hear or where that bull will want to see based on the topography and the wind direction and the phase of the rut so this is a very general broad question but how can guys become more of a quarterback instead of a, a guard or a tackle and to use that analogy is how do we become more of a quarterback and know what play to call and you know become the best offensive coordinator? For sure, no, and that's that's a great question. I like the way you put that. I had an opportunity to coach high school basketball this year, and I grew up, you know, I played high school basketball and played college basketball, and this was really my first experience coaching at the high school level, and it can be overwhelming. You just you, you get in there and teams are running, you know, even at the freshman level in high school, some of those teams are running multiple defenses and you've got to come up, you know, with the offenses to, to counter it and some offenses work against some defenses, some don't. Um, then you get into full court and half court presses and all these different things that, you know, as a player when I was playing, I probably didn't recognize the strategy near as much as you do when you're a coach. And there's some pros and cons to that. But as a coach, you have to understand that strategy and you have to be prepared for whatever they throw at you. And it just it really reiterated to me the importance of keeping things as simple as possible. Because the more things you're throwing out there, the better chance that, that your team is going to make mistakes and ultimately fail. And so I think working on a simple strategy and maximizing, you know, finding a good strategy that's simple and then focusing on that and practicing that until you're proficient and confident in it is really important. And when it comes to elk hunting, I, that, that's definitely my philosophy. I don't try to overthink it. I definitely try to, you know, learn as much about elk behavior as I can and understand 
their demeanor and, and their intentions. But when you break it down, an elk's really a pretty simple-minded animal. They're, they're trying to survive, they're eating, they're sleeping, they're drinking, and during the magical month of September, we get to witness the rutting activity. And, you know, when you keep it simple like that and understand that every one of their movements, every one of the activities that they do are focused on one of those elements. They're either going to find food, they're going to find water, they're going to a bedding area, or they're interested in the rut. And all of their movement and everything is focused on that and the element of survival. And so when you get into that mindset that during September they're rutting, um, they're emotional, their, their emotions can be triggered, and the, the triggers for those emotions are the desire to breathe and the desire to fight. And so really when I'm elk hunting, that's all I'm trying to do is either elicit an emotional response from that bull that you know, he wants to come and breed the cow that I'm pretending to be, or he wants to come and fight the bull that I'm pretending to be. And then it's just a matter of you know, becoming that personality and, and putting on that mask and becoming that elk that's trying to convince him one way or another there. And, and so and me as the, as the control freak or the quarterback or, or calling the shots or whatever, um, really it's just a matter of, of putting myself in that position to trigger that emotional response from the bull that I'm focused on and, and really getting their attention and, and letting that elk know that, hey, this is a conversation between you and me and no one else, and I'm specifically and, and strategically talking to you and, uh, and take it from there. And, and really a lot of times it's my emotion that, that's calling those shots, and I get caught up in it, and it becomes a, uh, you know, I almost said game there, but it's, it's even more than a game. It's a, it's a competition between me and that elk to convince him that I'm a dominant bull and, and I want to fight him. Yeah, so calling's huge for you and the way that you attack it. Um, everyone knows your calling prowess. I observed, and this is just my two cents, that when you were quarterbacking, you had guys ready to call for you, but you did look like majority of the calling up until a certain point, and then you were like, you stand over here or you go there. Um, and that, to me, I like that because I'm kind of a control freak. Um, did that happen when you first started hunting with the boys? Or did that develop, or is that just my imagination that that actually doesn't the way it goes down? Like, how, how does that, how does that work? And and tell me kind of like the thought process and and how maybe guys like me can employ that with our hunting buddies. For sure, no, and I'm sure if Dirk and Donnie are listening to this, they're they're rolling their eyes and <laughs> really badly to comment right now. But I think it's it's my personality. Um, I am a very laid back, easygoing uh, person until it comes to elk hunting. And we've had several talks about it. You know, some of it's all been positive, but, you know, they've pointed out, hey, you know, it's hard for us to even get a call-in because you're always doing the calling and you want to do the calling. And it's not a selfishness uh, characteristic, I don't think, and I, I think they would agree with me on that. It's just more of I'm so passionate and so committed to the success of our group and if I feel I can contribute and I can take control, and it's certainly not saying they can't because they're both very accomplished elk hunters, elk callers, and I would you know, trust them any day. But if, if my role becomes such that I can you know, call the shots on it and we are successful at it, then I just, you know, I think I've kind of not necessarily stepped into that role, but 
pillow to use at the at camp at night. And it's a fine line there, you know, and, and I think they understand that. And as a team, that's we're there. I'm not there to, to be the calling hero or to call in every elk. I'm not there to shoot the biggest elk. We're there as a team. And I think we we play really well together as a team, and we each have our roles, and, and we've kind of molded into them really well. But, you know, going back to your, your original question of, yeah, when we're in those situations, a lot of times, I can see, you know, I can visualize where that elk's going to come in, where he's going to be most comfortable coming into a setup, where we're going to have the most success calling him into a setup. And a lot of times I might say, okay, here's where I need to be set up. He's going to come through here. We've got shooting lanes here. So strategically, with the wind going this direction, the caller needs to be right in this clump of brush, like specifically right there. And so seeing that from my perspective, I might, you know, say, hey, Donnie, go set up at that brush to call from right there. And I can see the shooting lanes I have. I can see where the bull is, where he's going to be likely to come in. And then we actually, you know, it's kind of by accident, but the actual calling where me or whoever the shooter is out front is doing the calling kind of happened by accident. But we call it the slingshot. And basically the caller, uh, I guess stepping back, one of the one of the things that I really stress when it comes to calling is you need to be in you know, just we call it the red zone or the bull's bedroom. You just you need to be close to that elk to really elicit a response out of him that's going to get him to come into a setup. And so the closer we can get to that bull, the better our odds are of calling him in. And sometimes, you know, terrain might dictate you can only get 200 yards from him or you might be able to get 80 yards from him. But as close as you can get, every 10 yards you get closer probably brings your, your chances of calling that bull in up another 10%. And so... It really it came out of a, out of frustration. Just we couldn't get close enough to the bull to really pressure him with calls. Having the shooter back, you know, 50 or, or the the caller back 50 or 60 yards behind the shooter. And so as the shooter out front, I knew we just weren't getting that bull's attention. And so out of frustration, I gave him the challenge bugle from the shooter's position. And it tripped the trigger. It committed to him. He realized he was being pressured, and he turned and came into that setup. And then Dirk took over calling from there and pulled him through the setup and through the shooting lane. And so it's actually a strategy that we use quite a bit now is we get as close as we can, have the shooter get the bull committed to the calling, and then the, the shooter goes quiet and the caller 50 or 60 yards back behind takes over and is kind of the closer of the, of the game and pulls the bull in that last 50 or 60 yards. Now, when a bull's coming in and it's... I think statistically, you probably agree. More, more of your call-ins have come from challenge bugles than anything else. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so when that bull's coming in, yes, he trusts his nose, but visually, visually, does he want to see that other bull at some point to sort of size them up or slash speak to this display phenomenon that I've seen, where bulls want to display usually uphill from you in some topography. Um, how does a guy kind of differentiate between if a bull's just trying to get your wind or if he's actually going to try to get eyes on the sound that he's hearing? Yeah, and that's you know a great point to bring up is, is their nose is everything. They are going to rely 100% on their nose, but sight and sound are also important to them. And you mentioned, you know, a bull will a lot of times want to get uphill and be able to size up, and there's a physical advantage.
advantage for an elk to, to be uphill in addition to a visual advantage. And when we're walking, you know, hiking up the mountain, if we're looking up, we can't see near as far up as if we can get to a high point and look down. And so if an elk's coming into a setup and he can be above you, he's going to feel safe. And if he gets above you, he's also going to be able to see. And he might get to a point where he's 150 yards out and he can look down and see where those calls are coming from. There's a good chance he's not coming any closer. And he's going to hang up right there just and wait and see. And so I really like to stress getting on the same level as the elk. And instead of being below him or above him, you know, there's advantages for the elk both below and above. So if I can get on the same level, it kind of takes some of those advantages away from them and makes them come into my setup rather than stopping at 100 yards and, and waiting to visually see me. Uh, and it also, you know, if they're down below you, it's hard to pull that elk up a hill to you for the for the opposite reason. They feel at a physical disadvantage visually. They can't see, and so they aren't going to be as apt to just come plugging into a setup coming from downhill. So if you can get equal level with them, uh, it definitely helps from that regard. The other thing that being equal level to them, and I'm talking you know from an elevation standpoint, is thermals. And you know thermals are usually either going uphill or downhill. So if you can get equal level to them. Even if there's a switch in the thermals, it usually switches either up or down and very rarely goes side hill. So the, the thermal advantage plus the other advantages, there's there's several reasons to be at the same level as the elk. And uh, kind of, but going back to that original question about the setup and if they come, you know, if they're looking visually to see you, I always try to make sure that that collar is somewhere visually out of sight so that elk has to walk into the into the setup and into a shooting lane before he can stop and see where the sound's coming from. Because once they do get to that little knoll where they can look down 100 yards and see the exact tree you're sitting under and calling from, they probably aren't coming any closer if they don't see an elk. Yep, that's awesome. Well, you brought up the wind, so I got to kind of go next level. So... <laughs> This is for all those rookie, because my podcast is dedicated to shortening that steep learning curve, and I don't know about you, but it took me, I shot a bull with a rifle when I was 19 out of high school, switched to archery at age 20, and for four seasons, ate Idaho tag soup, and killed my first bull on the fourth year in New Mexico. Those years were, I wouldn't trade those back for anything, I learned so many lessons that are invaluable. And I'm still learning today, obviously, but the wind seems to be something that guys that are living out east or midwest that are, or even guys that live out west that are starting the elk hunting process don't truly grasp. So I want to kind of ask a pretty technical question on wind, because when you get a bull to torch off and you want to move in on them, what is the Corey Jacobson rule on wind? How big of a circle do you need to make? What's What's the gray area on if a wind's kind of going towards a bull where you are kind of risking getting winded while you're trying to get on their level? So you're not on their level right now, but you need to get on their level, up or down, whatever, across the canyon. What is kind of that gray area where it's probably risky business that you might get winded when you're trying to move in on an elk pretty fast? Man, I, I don't even take any risk. Wind is everything, and no amount of cover scent or scent neutralizer or anything is going to fool an elk's nose from human scent. And if the wind's blowing to the elk, you have basically zero percent chance. And you know there'll always be somebody that say, "Oh, I, you know, 
the wind was right at my back, and I walked right up to the elk 15 yards, and there, you know, elk go crazy during the rut, and bulls forget about their senses sometimes, and I've seen it happen, but the the norm 99 times out of 100 is if an elk even gets a whiff of a molecule of your scent in their nose, they're, they know there's danger and they aren't coming any closer. So for me, wind is everything, and, and you said it exactly. It can't be overstated. It can't be overstressed enough, especially for a new hunter. If you're not paying attention to the wind, you're just, you know, you're setting yourself up to fail over and over again. Uh, so for me, you know, I'll, I'll share a story, and, and uh, Donnie is more than gracious in allowing me to share it as a teaching opportunity, but Donnie hunted elk for 17 years with a bow and didn't kill one. And we met when I was working at Micron and, and just formed a relationship and uh, a common ground of hunting. And so there was a the first season that, that we worked together in the same group. We still weren't hunting together at that point, but my area was on fire. And I was just telling him, yeah, I'm not sure where I'm going to go. The entire side of the unit that I like to hunt is, is on fire and it's all closed right now. And he's like, well, I've actually hunted that same unit for a lot of years. I've never killed anything, but I always get into elk, and, and here's a spot you might check out. So I went up there opening morning that season into his area and shot an elk opening morning and came back and, you know, showing him pictures and talking about the hunt and telling him thanks for sending me to this area. And he's like, how did you do that? I've been hunting there 17 years and never killed an elk. And you go up there one day and kill an elk. And I said, well, I'm more than happy to take you up there. Let's let's go next weekend. And so we get up there and we get up, you know, park where he normally parks, where he told me to park, and walk up to a ridge and hit the ridge and climb up a half mile or so and ride at daylight view when the bull answers down in the bottom. And Donnie immediately turns and starts walking downhill towards the bull. And I was like, whoa, 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 stop, 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 don't, don't go down. And I pull out my little wind detector and puff it, and of course the wind's going right down into the bottom of the canyon like it does in the morning. And I'm like, we can't just drop down in there. The elk's going to smell us. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And I said, we've got to go off the backside of this ridge run. We've got to hike up the canyon about, you know, a mile and a half and get in the side draw and then drop down on him there. And he's like, there's no way. It's, you know, it's going to take an hour and a half to get down there. He's just five, 600 yards down the bottom of the canyon. We get right down there. And I said, I don't care how long it takes us. If we go straight at him, he's going to smell us within the next minute and a half. And he's going to be up the other side and out of reach, and we won't be able to call him in ever again. And, uh, you know, for him, it was a huge, he'd hunted a long time, but just as much attention as we put on wind, I don't think people put enough importance on, on wind and how vital it is to success. And so I will, I'll, I'll drop clear out of a drainage and go around the backside to come around and, and get in a position so the wind will be in my favor or I'll back out and wait until, you know, if it's close to that time when the winds are just unstable and the thermals are changing either in the mid-morning or, or late afternoon, I'll back out and, and go hunt another area and come back in. Or I'll go and sit on a ridge and wait and just listen and, and wait until the wind switches and is right. And it's probably, you know, I've, I've told people a lot of times, I'll, I'll trade my elk calls for a wind detector any day if I have to make a choice because wind is that vital. I can, I can kill an elk without calls as hard as it would be and as, as much as I would struggle with it. I can kill an elk without calls, but I can't kill an elk if the wind's not in my favor. Yep, that's awesome. Well, thanks, Donnie, for letting us feel way better about ourselves and uh, learn from <laughs> that. I mean, yeah, it's, 
it's no secret, but I think no one really truly grasps how technical and how many bottles of Windicator you should probably pack. Uh, yeah. I always lose a bottle every few days, it seems like. Uh, I don't know how many I've donated to the, the woods, but we were, before we recorded, we were talking about my least favorite subject, but we were talking about wolves, and uh, I think it's no secret, everybody knows that I, I hunt in North Idaho, specifically, I don't mind saying, the St. Joe, um, and we have so many wolves that um, it's blown my mind over the last 15 years I've hunted there, and you moved recently to, the, we'll just say Central Idaho, for lack of a better geographical idea, and you yep, were yep, yep. in, you got wolves right by your house where you live. And I respect your opinion, but what do you think? Where are we at on this wolf situation? I got a one and a half year old son that I, I hope that he gets to elk hunt as much as I've gotten to. And I know you have boys. I've seen Isaac shoot that awesome elk on the linguist. That's another film you got to check out. Yeah. You must see. But Corey, where are we going with this wolf situation, and what can we do as true sportsmen? Um, to help educate people, and, and what's your take on that whole scenario? For sure, and I, similar to you, you know, I grew up in, in northern Idaho and saw the impact of wolves up there, you know, on the locks on the cellway drainage and some of that. Um, and, and down here, I really think we're kind of the epicenter of wolves. You know, we're kind of the, the first place that wolves would come out of the Frank Church when they were reintroduced back in, I think it was, 95. And so I've gone from, you know, hunting here in this area at that time, and it was an absolute gold mine. I'm, I'm talking, I can remember conversations in the late 90s with my hunting partners just saying, I cannot wait for my kids to experience this. Just, you know, eight or ten bulls bugling every morning, just going from bugle to bugle to bugle, and mature bulls, and just the number of sheds we would pick up in the spring because of the, the populations of elk and everything. And then gradually seeing some change, and then not so gradually seeing some pretty dramatic uh, changes on the landscape for elk and elk hunting. And, you know, there, there, there are people on extremes on both sides. Uh, the, the bottom line is the wolves are here. And the shoot, shovel, shut up crowd, you know, we, it's just not an option. We aren't going to be able to manage them that way. So we have to, we have to look at it from the, the cards we're dealt with, and they're here. And they do affect elk, and they do affect... Uh, elk hunting, and I think the the reality is, if we're able to manage wolves the way that we've been able to um, since we've had a hunting season, I think we can keep populations of elk in check. I think we're okay on the population side, and there'll be pockets, no doubt. The wolves will will find easy hunting somewhere, and the, they'll go in and they'll put a hurt on populations, and so we have to really micromanage some of those those elk populations. But I think where we're really going to notice the effect and where I've seen the effect is in elk's behavior. And elk behave differently when wolves are in an area than they do when they're not. And for so long when we couldn't hunt them, when we couldn't hunt the wolves, the wolves were in all the areas the elk were. And so we noticed, you know, almost everywhere we went, the elk were much less vocal. They were much more skittish. They were much more mobile. They were continually moving, whereas before... I could go into the same drainage year after year, week after week in September, and the same elk were there, the same bulls were there, you know, I could count on it. And now I might travel six or eight of those drainages to find the pocket of elk and where they are on that particular day in September. And if there are wolves in there, I might not.
might not get a, a response from the elk. So I, I think more than anything, it, you know, there's an, a, a change in how we have to, some of the strategies we use maybe uh, for hunting elk. And as long as we're able to manage wolves, I think we'll be able to, to hunt elk and we'll have a huntable population of elk. If we aren't able to manage wolves and hunt wolves and keep their populations in check, uh, I would be very concerned about the future of, of the elk in the West and anywhere the wolves actually live. But uh, they're like any animal. They have to be managed, and wolves are harder to manage. And so it's, you know, there's, there's going to be an impact on elk and elk hunting for sure. Yeah, and they're pretty tough to hunt, as you probably know. Um. <laughs> I have never seen a wolf sit still. I just, they don't sit still. They're continually moving. So even if you spot one and get on it, unless it's in really open country and you've got a, you know, good strategic play to get in position and, and get a shot at them. Man, it's in timbered country and broken timber. They're just continually moving. And, you know, as you and I were talking, we got on them just yesterday we had seven of them and, and we could see them they were on a hillside but they were lined out and they were you know weren't moving in a hurry but they were moving and we were in three feet of snow and even with snowshoes and everything there is no possible way we were able to cover the country we needed to cover to even get even closer to them it just seemed like we were able to stay that mile three quarters of a mile to a mile from them and just could never close the gap yeah, they've really changed the way I hunt as well, and it's the same situation where I used to go to kind of a couple of sweet little spots, and it's not like that anymore, um, and I have to be, I just travel more during, and we're talking about a very small area where I still have to just travel further and, and be able to change tactics, and there are places where I've heard elk bugling while wolves are howling, like it was nothing, the rut was just going. And then there's times where wolves are howling or I'm seeing wolves and every elk within a square mile shut up. And yep. it just changes the way things are going. I, just, I, I hope that we can get a grip, a grip on management. <clears throat> I'm not super optimistic, but I don't have a choice. You know, there's not much else you can do. I hope that other states don't get the wolves. Um, you know, I would hate to see the Southwest have the wolves that we have or even Colorado or Utah. And I'm sure there might be a few that have crossed borders, but you know what I'm saying. They're pretty thick up here, especially, I mean, Idaho's numbers, I think are in the 700s compared to Wyoming and Montana are in the three or 400s. And I'm not sure if that's breeding pairs or total wolves. Yeah, and as you know, that's known wolves and, and reported wolves. And at this point in our management, you know, it's, we aren't accounting for every wolf out there, and there are packs of wolves that aren't even, you know, on any report or anything. And so those numbers are, you know, Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, wherever, those numbers are far from accurate. And it's a, it, it's an, it's an issue. And where you're at up there, you know, it's so brushy and thick and steep that it's virtually impossible to effectively hunt wolves, even in the winter, even out of a helicopter, if the fishing game was to go and try to manage them it's still almost impossible to to do that and you get down here a lot of our winter range is open country and and sagebrush and it's more effective if something needed to be done it could be done whereas up there you know, your hands are kind of tied no matter what you'd want to do or or need to do your options are really limited because of the terrain yeah well we can move on to something lighter
here. I just, uh, I want to <laughs> I know you live in Idaho, and I know you're as passionate as anyone I've ever probably met about elk hunting, and that just goes with the territory. You have to kind of bring it up and, and get people thinking about that. But So you just recently moved. You built your own house, and you did it yourself. Um, how long did that take you? Uh, you know, we started the process in June. Uh, we got permits. We, I think we poured foundations the first part of August and started framing mid-August, which wasn't my plan. My plan was to be, you know, dried in and ready to go by September so I could enjoy September a little more. Uh, but we ended up framing and, and doing, you know, getting the trades in there and getting it dried in during September. Uh, we were finished about the end of December, so we moved in the first week of January. So it took uh, four and a half months, I think, and, you know, it's that's probably a pretty fast clip up here where we're at just because subcontractors are a little uh, fewer and farther between down in Boise where I lived. You know, they were, I was able to, to build houses a lot faster down there up here. took a little bit more time, but by standards of the of the mountains i think we did it fairly quickly wow so yeah the reason why i brought that up is i i knew this but you built a house during hunting season you are an <laughs> entrepreneur you are a family man what advice do you have for guys gals out there that want to elk hunt as much as possible in september per se and how do you how do you make that happen for yourself, Corey, with all your other responsibilities? Do you have some best practices that you could share on ways to be able to walk away and enjoy the hunt and not have to turn the cell phone on and get cell service and check emails and all that stuff? How do you do it? For sure. No, and that's, that's a, it's a balancing act. It's continually evolving. You know, there's, there's things that come up. Fortunately for me, um, you know, with Elk 101, our core uh, product, if you will, is the University of Elk Hunting online course. And so it's designed to help other elk hunters while they're out in the field hunting. And it's, a, it's an online course, so it's an educational tool. So the idea is they're doing it before season. And realistically, the, the impact during September from a, from a member, from a customer, potential customer, is really minimized. And, you know, you look at some companies who, for instance, an archery shop. I would not want to be an archery shop owner simply because I'm tied to that during the times when, when my customers need me the most and I can't get out and enjoy it. And so, fortunately for me, you know, my business isn't as critical during hunting season as it is in the months leading up to it. Uh, so I, I can, I feel like I have some of that freedom when I'm not tied down to like you said, having to have the cell phone on or answer emails every day. Uh, and then I do have, you know, people in place that if, you know, they're checking in to make sure that if there is an emergency or somebody's locked out of access from their online course and wanting to access it, somebody's there to help them out. Um, but I've gotten away, you know, a, a full-time employee is, that just adds to the stress load and the workload. And so, you know, having my wife, be able to help out and being willing to help out more so than just, you know, keeping things, keeping the fire going on the home front while I'm gone and, and shuttling kids back and forth to sports and school and, and all that. And I think, you know, that's the heart of it. If you want to be an entrepreneur and be able to have uh, the freedom
freedoms to go and do what you want, you've got to have a spouse that supports that. And without that, it would be impossible. You know, I couldn't couldn't function in any of my uh, areas or try to have any semblance of balance without a wife that, that supports that and is a trooper for the month that she's a widow to the elk hunting season. God bless them. Well, we've covered some good stuff. I want to finish up with just kind of talking about um, where people can find you. I know that you just did an awesome elk seminar. I wasn't there, but at the Western Hunt Expo. Um, did you fill the room up? We did, yeah. In fact, it was uh, we had about 600 people there, and probably 120 or 150 of them were, were standing. Mm. So it was, uh, it was great. And, I, you know, the more people that we can get in a room like that, the more passionate I get about it. Just, I see so many other people with a, with a similar passion as mine, and it just fuels that desire to, to see them be successful and share. And I'm certainly not an expert, and you know, my, my philosophies aren't the only way or the right way necessarily, but if I can share experiences or um, things I've learned through failure or success with somebody else in a way that just, even if it's a little bit, contributes to them becoming a better elk hunter or a better business person or whatever it is, um, somebody else's success does in no way threaten my success. And so I, I love to see others be successful. So being able to, to share like that, it just it fuels my, my desire and my passion to help others. Well, that's, I wish, I was in Hawaii, unfortunately, but um, I, uh, I definitely, if I'd been there, I would have loved to be there. Standing room only would have been fine with me. Are you going to the Backcountry Hunter Angler Rendezvous in uh, Boise? I will, yeah, I'll be doing a seminar there. I forget the dates, but I think it's that Saturday. I'll be doing a seminar at the, at the BHA Rendezvous. Perfect, and then um, you usually do at least one mountain shoot uh archery wise do you have any on the on the docket yeah we'll uh definitely be at the northwest mountain challenge at tamarack because it's only about a 10 minute drive from my house now nice uh, we'll be at that one and then i'll be hitting the uh, total archery challenges in snowbird and big sky montana uh, for sure and then filling in with a couple others i'm sure around there and then i think there's one near me I think you went to it last year. Uh, I don't know the name of it. Forgive me. Uh, it's in yeah, the Silver, Silver Mountain Shootout. Yeah. Are you doing that again? Yep. I don't think so. I haven't haven't got it on my calendar. I don't even remember what weekend it was, but I haven't I haven't penciled it in for sure. So. Okay. And did you draw Wyoming? We did. We drew uh, general tags in Wyoming again, so we'll be heading back over there this fall. Sweet. Anything else on your radar for elk hunting tags? I'm gonna hunt Roosevelt for the first time this year. Oh, so, that's uh, cool. In Oregon. Yep, be hunting in Oregon. Uh, a buddy of mine has been hounding me for a while to to go over and hunt with him. So we're gonna do that early, like August 25th through the first, and just experience that. I've never never experienced it, and I've always just that country they live in, that coastal country, the rainforest canopy, and I just want to see one of those big white bodies with orange antlers moving through that black and green forest and looking forward to that well cheers to elk hunting it's closer than it was a month ago and uh that's right <laughs> i think you dropped some really good elk nuggets in here that are gold if people really stop and listen and think about what you said 
they're going to be better elk hunters, especially if they can employ those tactics. And then I guess my last question, just out of curiosity, is the Elk 101 University, what is the average time frame someone could go through that at a good pace and, and accomplish that? Like, what's what, how much time should you generally allow for that course? You know, it really depends on experience level and everything, but it has every single aspect of elk hunting you could imagine in it. It's 47 or 48 chapters. Uh, there's 17 modules. There's, I don't know, 130,000 words and 70 videos. It, I mean, it's a legit course that would take some time to go through. If, you know, if you're an experienced hunter and you just want to learn more on calling or improving your calling, you know, there's a module on just using elk calls. There's a, a module on calling elk. You could go through those faster, but for somebody to sit down and, and go through the whole thing, I don't think you would ever want to try to do it in less than a month, you know, just dedicating a couple hours here and there to, to sit down and go through it and absorb it and take notes and, and really go through it. It, would, it. it takes an investment of time for sure, and I, I think that's the, the critical part of it is we invest in gear, you know, our weapons and boots and backpacks and everything, and so many people don't invest in themselves, and I just think now, that's really the, the premise of my seminar this year is putting the you in success and, you know, investing in you, whether that's physical conditioning, whether that's increasing elk hunting knowledge. And uh, I think for people to pay for what they would put in a tank of gas for a, a one-day scouting trip to invest in themselves, it'll pay off for a lifetime. Is, uh, it's really important to, to take that time and make that investment, not just financially, but from a time standpoint as well. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Guys can check that out at elk101.com. Corey, thank you so much for your time, man. I definitely have the utmost respect for what you do and how you stay true to the blue-collar elk hunters. That's who I'm trying to reach. And I know you're a busy man, as it was tough to get lined up scheduled-wise and probably without some sort of sacrifice. So thank you again for coming on, man. No, absolutely. I appreciate you having me. And anytime I can... Uh, Talk elk hunting. I'm game, so appreciate it very much. All right, well, we'll wrap this up. And uh, for guys that listening out there, um, Corey can Corey's on Facebook, Corey's on uh, Instagram, and all those socials. And he's got a killer YouTube channel. Go check all that stuff out and get out there and go elk hunting. Um, Corey, I'm going to stop recorder here and just chat with you for a second. Hang tight.